Welcome back to the program. Over a five-year period starting in 1968, commercial jets were hijacked nearly once a week using guns, bombs, and jars of acid. Some hijackers wanted to escape to Cuba or Saigon. Many imagined being hailed as heroes. Others simply wanted to swap hostages for big stacks of cash. Their exploits mesmerized the country. Some days saw multiple hijackings. Listen to this news report from WOR Radio in New York. This is the news in detail on the hour from the WOR Newsroom. Two airline hijackings tonight in the United States still in progress. One apparently with an anti-American political motive. The other is for big money. In Los Angeles, a Western Airlines plane set down under control of a man believed armed with a pistol. He at first wanted the medium-range 727 jetliner to go to North Vietnam, but he changed his destination to Cuba. The aircraft took off a short time ago for Cuba, is now en route for a possible refueling stop in Dallas. A hijacker is said to have given a note to the pilot that said, the skies of America will not be safe again until the United States government ceases its aggression against the people of Indochina. Sixty-five passengers and the crew remain aboard. Only 11 persons were allowed to disembark in Los Angeles. As for the money air pirate, an unidentified man was last reported aboard an Eastern airliner as it landed tonight in New Orleans. That plane had taken off for a second time from Washington after Eastern satisfied the hijackers' demand for larger denomination bills totaling approximately $300,000. The pirate was described as well-dressed, well-spoken, and businesslike until he presented a 38 caliber revolver this morning as the plane was en route from Allentown, Pennsylvania to Washington. All the passengers were allowed to get off the Eastern Airlines plane after the first stop at Dulles Airport in Washington. But perhaps the story that most captured the nation's attention on many levels was the story of young lovers at the heart of my guest Brendan Kerner's story of this amazing period, which he tells in his book, The Skies Belong to Us. Brendan Kerner is a contributing editor at Wired. He's a former columnist for both the New York Times and Slate and was named one of Columbia Journalism Review's 10 Young Writers on the Rise. It is my pleasure to welcome Brendan Kerner here to talk about The Skies Belong to Us. Love and Terror in the Golden Age of Hijacking. Brendan Kerner, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. Every time I hear that news report, I hear more things in it that capture the tenor of what was going on during this period, this sense of almost excitement over these multiple hijackings going on day after day after day. And, and in fact, the airline industry and the government kind of powerless to do anything about it. Yeah, they certainly were, and I think it goes back to a lot to how the airlines um, perceived the risks inherent in this. You know, these were, these skyjackers were interested in negotiation. They didn't want to really harm people. They didn't want to crash planes in the populated areas. They just wanted money or passage to foreign countries or other things where they could swap the passengers, for, you know, get their demands satisfied. So I think people were kind of very interested in, you know, what people would come up with. Like these hijackers would come up with new innovations, jumping out of planes, taking them to new new lands. It's almost like a spectator sport in some way. You know, every time there's a new hijacking, people wanted to know well, what made this one different than the other ones. And the airlines in particular, you know, they thought about this and they said, well, you know, we could search everyone who comes onto a plane and therefore make sure people aren't carrying guns and dynamite and all sorts of things they can use to hijack planes. But to do that, we'd have to pay millions of dollars for metal detectors and security personnel to operate them. 
and perhaps more important, they were afraid that passengers might be scared away, that no one wanted to be treated like a criminal suspect uh, for flying, and they'd lose lots of business. So the alternative was to put up with, you know, 20 to 40 hijackings a year, comply completely with every demand the hijackers made, and you would get the plane back and the passengers back safe, and that was much cheaper than instituting pervasive security. And one of the other things that they did in trying not to scare the passengers is almost not take it as seriously as as maybe you would have, that, that it had a kind of entertainment value and excitement about it all. Yeah, and that's really the way the media covered it at the time. Um, you know, when, when passengers would come back, the focus wasn't on the terror they had felt or you know, the fact that maybe they had come quite close to, to being killed uh, by a hijacker who had dark intentions. It was more about the nuttiness of the hijacker they encountered and their adventures in Havana or, or what have you. Um, so, yes, it was certainly treated with a much lighter touch than it would be today. And then there were things like the cover of Life magazine and stories about, you know, what makes a hijacker and trying to create these psychological profiles. Yeah, there certainly was. There was a great interest um, in the psychological makeup of hijackers, a real struggle on the part of the country to understand what was making scores of people who otherwise a lot of times had very normal backgrounds, nothing in their background stuck out as aberrant, all of a sudden were hijacking planes to to Cuba and then jumping out of planes, clutching million-dollar ransoms. there was actually a figure who kind of filled in the pop culture void in terms of explaining the psychology of skyjacking, a man named David Hubbard, who was a Freudian psychiatrist. And he actually wrote a best-selling book about this called The Skyjacker, His Flights of Fantasy, in which he uh, postulated several things about a typical hijacker um, and saying that you know a lot of it traced back to their upbringing. He said that they had alcoholic fathers and distant religious mothers and that they often had a lot of problems with locomotion as toddlers. They had problem walking, and this all traced back to a problem in their inner ears. In fact, Hubbard went so far as to conduct experiments on monkeys, uh, trying to show that if you gave monkeys, um, when they were in, you know, in a mother's womb, a, b- a better diet of manganese and zinc, they wouldn't have these inner ear problems, and therefore, perhaps, you know, wouldn't be prone towards, you know, violence or aberrant behavior uh, as mature monkeys. And in fact, the reality was that it was a pretty crazy mix. I mean, some of the people that engaged in this, as you talk about, were doing it for political reasons. Some, it was pure economic crime. I mean, the reasons were, were incredibly varied. Yeah, and that's, I think, what made it such a challenge to write about, is that, you know, going over, as you said, you know, over 150 cases, uh, in an 11-year period in American history, and seeing that all the motives, the galaxy of motives, was so broad. Um, certainly you had some who genuinely had a political cause. You had some who pretended to have a political cause, but it really traced back to personal grievances against the government, um, against employers. Uh, you had some people who were straight-up criminals, wanted the money. You had some people who were just mentally unwell and were delusional. Um, and you just have lots of surprising cases that haven't, you can't really figure out. People who, you know, came from good families, good homes, um, had things going for them. And all of a sudden, one day, they show up on a plane with a pistol and say, take me to Cuba or give me a sack of cash. I think there was one unifying theme in all of these, though, um, is that these were people who felt that they were in desperate circumstances. 
And they saw hijacking as a way they could instantly write or remake their lives. I think the goal for all these hijackers was that after I do this, I may fail, but uh, if I fail, that's fine because I'm, I'm on a path to nowhere good anyway. If I succeed, I instantly reinvent myself. I wash away my whole former life and I start all over again. So it was a, an action of the desperate. Talk about Arthur Barclay, because he was really the first one to demand ransom. He's the one that, that added the economic component to it. Yeah, he's a fascinating character. Um, so Arthur Gates Barclay, he was an unemployed truck driver from Arizona, and he had spent seven years, between 1963 and 1970, embroiled in a dispute with the IRS over a $471.86 tax bill. And eventually, he becomes so fed up that he had actually appealed his case to the Supreme Court, and he wrote his own legal brief, and uh, he opened the brief with this great line. The very first line was, I am being held a slave by the United States. Um, as it does in most cases, the Supreme Court refused to hear his appeal, and this was the last straw for Berkeley. Um, he decided that he wanted to hijack a plane, which he did, out of Phoenix, took it to Washington, D.C., where he demanded... $100 million in cash, and he wanted that to be paid directly by the Supreme Court to him as punishment for the fact that justices had refused to hear his case. And TWA, which was the airline involved, they were incredibly flummoxed by this because, as you note, no hijacker had ever asked for money before. This was June 1970. Hijackers had always asked for passage somewhere, mostly to Cuba, but also some other countries as well. And so TWA had a choice. You know, what do they do? And they made the choice to go with their policy of total compliance. And they rounded up as much money as they could in short notice, about $100,000, and gave it to Barkley, hoping that would be enough to mollify him. Um, in fact, Barkley freaked out, dumped all the cash all over the a cockpit floor, ordered the plane back into the skies above Virginia, and kept radioing back messages addressed actually right to President Nixon, you know, threatening to, to crash the plane. So eventually they, they lured him back to the airport. They lined up a hundred mail sacks stuffed with newspaper clippings. Um, they told him it was cash. And when he landed, the FBI raided the plane and shot Barkley. Why did Cuba become such a hot destination for so many of these hijackings? Well, you have to keep in mind that you know in the 60s, when the, the destin Cuba as a destination was so popular, we had a very different conception, popular conception, I think, of, of what Fidel Castro was doing down there. I think a lot of people genuinely thought that he was building this kind of classless, wonderful socialist paradise, um, and it was just so close. And so I think a lot of people thought of this great place where they could escape to and that they would be greeted um, as heroes for embarrassing the U.S. and that Castro would embrace them and you know, set them up with a new life and they would remake themselves. Um, obviously, reality was quite different. In fact, Fidel Castro was not happy to see these American hijackers. He really thought they were crazy and that they were malcontents and criminals that he did not want in Cuban society. And so upon landing there, um, most of the hijackers were imprisoned, um, some in kind of like a light kind of imprisonment in a dormitory in southern Havana. They were each given 16 square feet of living space and 40 paces a month to subsist on. But some of the hijackers uh, were sent to sugar harvesting gulags on the southern coast where conditions were really nightmarish. Um, a lot of corporal punishment, um, all, all, a lot of deprivation. It was a really terrible situation for these hijackers. And at the center of your story is this hijacking that was put together by Roger Holder and Kathy Kirko, which in many ways 
incorporates all of the things, elements of all of the things that we've been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So they, they did have political motives. And this was um, a Vietnam veteran, uh, uh, Roger Holder, who served four tours in Vietnam with the Army, had gone AWOL upon his return to the U.S. and fell in love with this 20-year-old uh, masseuse, Kathy Kirko. They had a couple motives and a couple of things they wanted to achieve. You know, the first was that they wanted to be able to um, liberate Angela Davis, uh, who was an imprisoned black radical then on trial for murder in Northern California for um, supplying guns to some militants who had been involved in a shootout at a courthouse in Marin County, California. Uh, they also wanted money. They wanted quite a sizable amount of money, and Roger Holder wanted to donate that money to the Viet Cong. Um, he wanted to do that as a way to assuage some of the guilt he felt about the role he had played in the war. Talk a little bit about what they planned and how it started to play out. Their plan was to hijack a Hawaii-bound jet, take that to San Francisco, uh, exchange the passengers for Angela Davis and a, a large ransom, fly then to Hanoi, um, where they would you know, free Angela Davis there. She was a communist, so they felt that she would be welcome there donate the money to the Viet Cong in a kind of public ceremony at which Roger Holder would make clear that he felt bad about his involvement in the war for so long, and then fly to Australia, where Holder claimed that he and Kathy Kirko would be allowed to homestead in the outback without fear of extradition. Tell us a little bit about their relationship, first of all. Yeah, well, it's interesting because they had, their paths had actually crossed very briefly as children. Roger Holder was from a Navy family an African-American family, and in 1959, his father was posted to a naval station in Coos Bay, Oregon. He only lasted three months there because they were actually harassed and treated quite terribly by some racists in the town. It was a, somewhat of a lily-white town. So they were actually run out of town after three months, and as the family was packing up, Roger Holder was playing in a recreational area in town one day, and he encountered a young Kathy Kirko, who was catching salamanders at the time, and they had a very brief interaction. When they saw each other again in 1972, 13 years later in San Diego, and Roger Holder was by that time an AWOL soldier living in San Diego under an assumed identity and, and you know, using bounce checks to support himself. Kathy Kirko was living down there with a friend and was working in a massage parlor, and they, you know, accidentally bumped into each other, and they remember this interaction. And Roger Holder, who was very much into astrology, figured this was the universe's way of telling him that you know, he and Kathy were meant to do something spectacular. When they planned their, their hijacking, Algiers became their, their initial destination. Why Algiers? Well, what happened in the course of the hijacking is that they end up not on a Hawaii-bound flight, but a Seattle-bound flight. Um, for reasons that are, are described in the book, and they hijacked that flight. Unfortunately, that plane was a Boeing 727, which does not have the range necessary to get across an ocean or even to Hawaii from the, the west coast of the United States. They eventually do get access to a second plane, a longer-range Boeing 720 in San Francisco, but at that point, Roger Holder thought, well, this must be a sign that I'm not meant to go to Hanoi. I'm meant to go somewhere else. And he had a list of alternate destinations in a notebook he had with him. And he chose Algiers. And ultimately, Algiers leads them to Paris. Yes, it does. They spent some time in Algiers in what I would characterize as a commune of exiled Black Panthers. But that commune falls apart, um, you know, 
within just a few months of their arrival there, um, the Algerian government sours on the Panthers, and, and everyone has to flee. And Roger and Kathy flee to Paris, and they actually um, live there for a while until they're discovered living under assumed identities in 1975. And how was this story covered? How did the media perceive these two? Well, at the time, in 1972, obviously, there was some, you know, a, a romantic element to it. Obviously, there was a great deal of surprise. Um, this was an interracial couple at a time when that was still kind of a novel thing. Um, so there was a, a great deal of interest. But to be honest, at that time, it faded away quite quickly because there were just so many hijackings. That within a few weeks, you know, the immediate interest had moved on to the next sensational story. And, you know, they didn't really resurfaced on the popular radar until 1975 when they're arrested in Paris. And at that time, they actually become quite popular figures in France. France, obviously, a country with great sympathy for, for political radicals and revolutionaries. And a French lawyer, a very well-known lawyer, really characterized them uh, to the media as, as freedom fighters in a lot of ways, as people who sacrificed everything to oppose the Vietnam War. So they become quite popular in France. And in fact, they had become friends with celebrities and movie stars and everything else in Paris. Yeah, well, subsequent to their arrest, you had a lot of, um, you know, intellectual figures come out uh, to support them, particularly Jean-Paul Sartre um, was a big supporter of theirs. And you did have several uh, movie stars who were interested in their case and offered public support to them. And after their release in Paris in 75, um, the French would not extradite them back to the United States. They did run in these circles, um, you know, with, it was a very uh, high society circles in France. Um, Kathy Kirka became very close friends with Maria Schneider, uh, well known from Bertolucci's Last Tango in Paris, for example. What started to happen that began to stop some of these hijackings? Well, I think by the end of 1972, the hijackings were getting so out of control and so dangerous that it became obvious that the airlines would have to relent and accept the fact they would have to screen all passengers. There was one hijacking in particular in November 1972 um, involving a small commuter airline in the South. You had three fugitives um, who hijacked a plane uh, above Alabama and threatened to crash it into the nuclear reactor at Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee unless they were given $10 million. And I think at that point, that's what really changed everything. It was, it was the tipping point in the sense of that all of a sudden the airlines realized that there could be mass destruction and death associated with the hijacking. And, you know, the negative publicity and the liabilities involved in that were, were just not worth the risk anymore. Then, of course, there was the TWA hijacking and the images of that, which, which had a really negative effect. That was. I remember that as a child and, and how terrifying that was because of the way it was covered with uh, you know, mass gunmen. And I think that really changed the way people perceive hijacking in America. Um, it really changed the way we imagine it. We saw it kind of now as this tool of you know, these Islamists and these kind of enigmatic foes we had on the other side of the world, not kind of more of a domestic phenomenon. It seems to me, thinking back about it, that really was, was the major tipping point. I mean, it certainly came after this period that you write about, but that was when we really changed our perception pretty dramatically about these things. Yeah, I think so. I think that's a big reason why this whole time period in the 60s and 70s in America was forgotten, because we came to associate hijacking you know, with, with terrorism, our, our modern definition of terrorism, people that are, are deeply opposed to the aims and interests of the United States using it as a tool. 
And we kind of forgot about the fact that we had all these people in America doing it for very different reasons, you know, a decade, a decade and a half earlier. And least we not uh, forget D.B. Cooper, who was also part of the lure of all of this at the time. Yeah, sure. So D.B. Cooper, I'm, I'm sure most people are familiar with him, was a, a man who in November 1971 jumped out of a Northwest Orient uh, Airlines um, flight over near the Washington, Oregon border and was never seen again. And so I think in the popular imagination, people were able to say, you know, pretend that he probably survived and got away with it. And that's a very romantic notion that someone actually got away with this and was never seen again. And there really was, and, and, and you tell it as part of the story of Roger Holder and Kathy Kirkow, there was this romantic element to all of this. It's so hard to imagine in the context of how we perceive this today. Well, we certainly all have escape fantasies. And we all think, well, what if we could have in one fell swoop to start all over again, um, perhaps with someone we were, were madly deeply in love with and just be on the run and be that kind of Bonnie and Clyde type figure. That's, there is a, a, a very strong romantic appeal to that. Um, you know, what happened eventually, though, is that once the violence got out of hand and, and the threat to human life got out of hand, that kind of faded away and became just, just overly concerned about the security implications of this. And in many ways, this story is about the end of inno the innocence of that period. Yeah, it really is. I think that that early 70s period was fascinating to me because obviously a lot of the idealism of the 60s had come to naught. The, the war was still going on. You'd had civil rights leaders assassinated. And there was tremendous cynicism, I, I think, uh, you know, in the country at that time. You had a lot of veterans coming back from Vietnam who were disillusioned with their experience there and, and angry about the way they were be, being treated here. It was a very chaotic time um, in American history, and I think that, you know, this was, was part and parcel of that. Um, people acting out and lashing out against a country they felt you know, no longer really personally invested in. They, they acted out by hijacking planes. How did pilots deal with this? Pilots were obviously really upset with this. A lot of them really wanted to take more decisive action against the hijackers were obviously forbidden uh, by company regulations that were focused on total compliance for the sake of the passenger safety. But, you know, in 1972, in fact, right after, you know, Roger and Kathy hijacked the plane, they organized a one-day global pilot strike in reaction to it, um, trying to get governments and airlines to do something more meaningful. And then shortly after that, when no action is taken, you have a very famous incident aboard a Pan Am Boeing 747 that was hijacked um, it was going from San Francisco to Saigon. And what ends up happening there is the pilot um, knows that there is a man on board, a retired police officer who's armed. The pilot goes back in the plane at the Saigon airport, um, grabs the hijacker by the throat, throws him down, and yells out for the cop to come back and, and shoot the hijacker to death, which is done. The hijacker shot in the head. The pilot picks up the body and throws it out the back of the plane onto the tarmac. And he did that because he wanted to make a statement. He wanted to show the world that pilots were sick to death of putting up with this. Talk about the management of the airlines. We talked earlier about how they, they really didn't want to scare people off of flying, which was still a pretty new experience at the time. When they finally had to do something, the, the limits of what they could do were far different than what we see today. Yeah, well, what first happens is that the FAA creates this a secret skyjacker profile. And what this is, it's about 25 behavioral cues um, that are supposed to be indicative of a potential skyjacker. Um, instead of hiring security personnel to, to you know, apply these to incoming passengers, they just entrust ticket agents to kind of give each 
passenger the once over and decide if anyone needs to be screened further. Um, and if you did hit any of these cues, then you're back in the side for a quick little search. Um, the airline could deny to do if you had valid photo ID for a while. Um, but the whole reason was it was designed to apply to only about half of 1% of travelers. They really did not want to make everyone go through metal detectors. Um, when eventually that does happen, and January 5th, 1973 is the first day of this happening, um, you know, the airlines expect people are going to be freaked out and are going to be up in arms about this and how dare you treat me like a criminal. But in fact, the American public was completely on board with this because they were just incredibly frightened about what could happen if the epidemic was allowed to continue. So it was actually quite a, a, quite a popular move, ultimately. Brendan Kerner. His book is The Skies Belong to Us, Love and Terror in the Golden Age of Hijacking. Brendan, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 